Welcome to episode 37 of Breakout Culture. I'm Ed Vasey, none other than the culture editor of Country and Townhouse magazine. And I'm Charlotte Metcalf. I'm the associate editor of Country and Townhouse. Now we're going to start talking about one of the sexiest books ever to land on Charlotte and my desk. First, just as to make us sound even more debauched, we're going to talk about drink. This podcast is brought to you by the award-winning Martin Miller's Gin, whose summerful gin we're particularly loving at the moment. It's absolutely delicious and botanicals include rosemary and arctic thyme, so it really is wonderfully refreshing. Now, unlike Ed, I haven't finished my bottle of Somerville because I've been hiding it from my oldest daughter who loves gin and I've been saving it for best, as my grandmother used to say. In fact, I did get it out last Friday to give a friend of mine a gin tonic and he said it was the best gin tonic he'd ever tasted. So to any of our listeners who haven't tried it yet, it really is very good indeed. So just go to martinmillersgin.com to find out more and order a bottle of Summerfull now. Now getting on to this week's very exciting podcast, we're going to start with an extraordinary new book called A Year on Earth with Mr. Hell, published via the New York art gallery, Ubu. This is a wonderful memoir being presented as an artwork by young Kim, who was Malcolm McLaren's devoted partner for the last 12 years of his life until his death in 2010. A Year on Earth with Mr. Hell moves young Kim's life on six years later and is an account of her relationship and erotic adventure with the American punk musician and writer, Richard Hell. She's here to tell us all about it. Hello. Hello. Hi, Young, and it's wonderful to have you with us today. I finished reading your book last night, and um, wow. Uh, first of all, I want your fabulously glamorous <laughs> yeah. life in the art and fashion world and all of your clothes. <laughs> and I'd be lying if I didn't say I'm just a little bit envious of your sex life because there's a lot of seriously good sex going on in this book. Now, you do explain this in the book, but start by telling our listeners about um, Richard Hell and why you decided to be so open about your relationship with him. Um, I mean, this book was written with no uh, no planning. There was no no point. I wrote it for myself, and it was it started out just as a kind of experiment, mainly because Richard he's known in the music world. He's legendary in the music world, and was an inspiration for Malcolm for America, for punk, which he brought from New York to London, did his own uh, spin on it. But Richard is originally a poet and a writer, and he his specialty is dirty writing. He is totally sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And so he's written pieces called like Conolingus, Sex on Drugs, and his own memoir is a lot about his sex life and quite graphic, and he's known for this. And so after the first night we spent together, Richard asked me to write something sexual about the night we had spent together. And so I asked him, did he want something addressed directly to him or would he be happy with a narration? Because that comes natural to me because I write diary entries and I also write a lot of letters to friends. So while I wait to hear from him, I started writing a narration of the beginning of the evening when we first met outside the restaurant. So I sent the 500 words to him and he, he loved it all. And I really enjoyed writing it. So I thought, okay, I'm going to write down everything that happened that night. And so I just start, I just kept writing and writing and I never thought anything of it. And I never, it never even occurred to me that there was anything unusual about this or being this intimate or this honest or explicit. It really didn't. And I think maybe that's because of Malcolm, the way we worked together, there was never any artistic boundary to anything. Um, and to me, it's very Malcolm too, in that you take something that just comes across in your life and you turn to a work 
And so that's really it. I mean, there was really no thought put into this. It was, I wasn't trying to do something or create anything specifically. It was an experiment. And I thought it was interesting also to document this as it happened, because most of the time, these things are written after a fact, so they are real memoirs. Um, but this is not a memoir and that was written as it happened. So literally the end of this book is I ended, I finished writing it when the story ends right then and there. There's a gazillion things to unpack uh, <laughs> in this book. Unlike Charlotte, who's sex mad. I think, <laughs> I think the sex is the sort of least interesting bit. I think for me, there are kind of three or four things that I would, why I would recommend this book to any reader. One is obviously that there's a kind of, en passant the history of punk which is fascinating i didn't know about richard hell and i didn't know the point that you make about effectively punk being a u.s import then kind of repackaged as a british thing and kind of sent back to the states which i found absolutely fascinating we can talk about that i think the relationship between a man and a woman that you unpack because as you say you put everything down as it happens i don't want this to sound sort of slightly pathetic but I'd almost say every man should read this if he wants to understand <laughs> what a woman is thinking during their relationship. I think it really does that. I think there's an element of culture clash. You're, you're of Asian heritage and there's an element of sort of not quite with Richard. Sometimes the jokes miss each other, as it were. I think that is also absolutely uh, fascinating. And obviously there's the amazingly glamorous life you lead. So it's pure escapism. Well, let's start with, uh, it's a bit, a bit uh, boring, but, you know, Malcolm McLaren. I mean, you were with the godfather of punk for 12 years. I mean, Malcolm often said, and I think it's pretty true, that today uh, Brit Britain or England can be summed up, really, with the royal family and punk. I mean, big, <laughs> big uh, identifiers, frankly. You know, when I met Malcolm, I really knew very little about him. I just thought he looked wonderful. And yeah, we, we just really got along. We, we gave each other the things we needed. And of course, you know, I learned in due course about his history, um, you know, as we worked together, it all came up. But he didn't dwell in the past either, Malcolm. He was a typical artist in that he was always looking forward. He always wanted to know what was going on, what was coming next. And he had incredible and uncanny talent for picking up things that were just starting out that would become very important down the line. I think um, partly one of the book's strengths, and there are many, lies in the fact that you're, you're so entirely unsentimental. What I think is really interesting, you, you, it's, it's almost as if you're dissecting your emotions from a great distance and you never, ever ask us to pity you or to judge Richard or Malcolm for that matter. You know, and sometimes your friends say to you, how do you put up with that dismal behavior? But you never present yourself as a victim in any way. You know, that's interesting. Um, well, I, I don't expect people to pity me. I think it's unfortunate. And yeah, I'm very sad that someone I love so much, uh, who has so much to give too, and still to give further, uh, had he lived, um, things he wanted to do that he should die in that way um, at such a young age when people really live on and on. Um, as someone who led a pretty clean life, I mean, look at Keith Richards, he's still around, you know, <laughs> but, you know, life is life. What can you do? You have to make the best of it and you have to move forward. And I suppose a partly my personality and also, you know, I'm the child of immigrants. We, my parents struggled very hard when we went to the United States and I had a lot of responsibility placed upon me since I was a very small child, um, since I'm the oldest. So since I was about nine, once I could read and write properly, I dealt with their paperwork. Um, ever since then. And I was more like the third adult. So I'm not used to the kind of idea of, yeah, um, woe is me or, you know, and, and it's just, I suppose, the personality as well. But you expect men to be quite clueless and helpless, don't you? Well, I, well, I, 
that is definitely often... a theme that comes across. <laughs> well, I think often they are. I don't think all of them are. They're different kinds of personalities, but I think the ones, certainly artistic ones and the ones I'm attracted to <laughs> tend to be. <laughs> I mean, I just had someone tell me something really hilarious the other day. She said, adolescence ends for girls at 16. For men, maybe at the age of 70. <laughs> no, I definitely still think I'm 15. It's pathetic. Just as a segue, I'm dying to ask what your family thought about it, because there's a great line in the book where uh, I think your parents said the, the most important thing is to get a job that needs a license to practice. <laughs> to be completely honest, my sister knows about it. And when I told her about it first, she looked at me. She's a cardiologist. She looked at me <laughs> very seriously and said, I'm really shocked and looked extremely shocked. <laughs> um, I have not told anybody else in my family. I don't see any point. So going back to adolescent men, do, do you think it's, a, it, have people said to you, you know, this is a kind of revelatory book for them in terms of understanding how men and women work? Surprisingly, men love this book. And I've been told it's partly because they want to know how a woman thinks. Exactly. I can think of another reason. Certainly men, I think, who are, I think, over the age of 45, they enjoy it because they realize that life goes on. And <laughs> ones who are a bit older, men in their 50s, and I have um, a couple of men in their 60s, said, it gives hope for the rest of us. <laughs> how, how did Richard react to the publication of the book? Yes. Well, he's not very happy, you know, I think for a variety of reasons. One is he considered... Is that English happy. understatement you're deploying there? <laughs> <laughs> Probably. Um, but no, I think, you know, he, for him it was private. Uh, he also got caught out, and um, you know. Also, I think he's not happy that I'm stomping on his territory too. He is known for writing um, about sex, so I think all these things. Um, but it's yeah. pretty flattering. I I would hope so, and people have told me it is. I mean, I certainly wrote it with only only you know the best intentions towards him, best feelings for him. I really mean that, and my feelings for him have never changed. I think he, I thought he was wonderful when I met him. And I still think he's wonderful. You published this. I mean, it's hard to get a hold of because you've published it uh, in collaboration with Fashion Beast in a limited edition of 2000 copies. And I have to say, again, being terribly superficial, when I was reading it, I was screaming out, audio book, audio book. This will sell like <laughs> hotcakes. Yeah. You've clearly yeah. decided not to go down a commercial route, but an art route. The problem has been with commercial publishers, they're incredibly corporate. So um, they don't know what my book is. I've been told they don't know what bookshelf to put it on. But all kinds of people try to help me, but the publishing industry is extremely conservative. And some people told me maybe you should fictionalise it. It's too good to be true for fiction in a way. I mean, because I think if in fiction, it's just everyone would be thinking, oh, it can't be that glamorous. She can't be on another plane to Positano and then going to, you know, Art Basel and <laughs> they go to Kenya. And then, you know, I think that's it's, its whole wondrousness is that it's absolutely real. This is the kind of stuff that I write for myself, my journal entries or letters to friends. It's just what comes natural to me. So... For me to turn something to fiction, I mean, I don't really, for me, it's, it's something I don't want to do and I'm not sure how to do it. Anyway, it's been brilliant talking to you. Thank you so much for giving us so much of your time. It's wonderful yeah, uh, to you. have you in London. London is very excited. And obviously this book is a sellout because there aren't very many copies of it. No, there aren't many, uh, but they can order it on the gallery website. <laughs> so uh, what is the gallery website? It's Ubu Gallery, U-B-U. UB, sorry, UBU Gallery, UBU Gallery.
Okay, so all our listeners, the Benedict Old Girls and our fans in Peru, <laughs> the ubugallery.com is where to get this marvellous book. We are very privileged to have read it. So thank you so much, Young Kim. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Now our next guest is Simon Berry, chairman of Britain's oldest wine and spirit merchant, Berry Brothers and Rudd, founded in 1698. For any wine lover, Berry Brothers on St. James's is a hallowed institution and Mayfair Landmark with its wonderful tasting cellars. What is less known about Simon, who is of course one of the Berry family, is that he longed to be an actor and always says he didn't do it because of lack of talent. Yet not to be deterred by this, he's turned his hand instead to writing a radio play and as luck would have it, one of his customers, Emma Thompson, agreed to play the lead in it. The play is called The Dame and the Showgirl and it's available on Audible from the 6th of May. It tells the story of when the great poet Dame Edith Sitwell met Marilyn Monroe in a Los Angeles hotel in 1953. Emma Thompson plays Dame Edith and Sinead Matthews plays Marilyn Monroe and Simon's here to tell us all about it. Good morning, Simon. Good morning, Ed. Good morning, Charlotte. Good morning, Simon. Good morning. It's an absolute delight to have you here. I listened to the play last weekend and I absolutely loved it. It's just under an hour of undiluted joy and I wish it were all 100% true. Now tell us your starting point, how much you were able to research, what actually happened and how much have you simply had fun making up? And Ed, I, I've got a lot to correct you, I'm no longer the chairman of Berry Brothers, I was for 14 years. Oh that's years. my fault. <laughs> uh, no, 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 I actually retired on my 60th birthday which is far too long ago now three and a half years ago now in order to write plays the starting point actually was was a lecture who our mutual friend alex sitwell alex hayward as she is now uh dame edith's great niece she gave a wonderful lecture about renishaw about the uh sitwell family house at the chalk valley history festival this was a few years ago and while she was talking about edith and the famous sitwell siblings the, the uh, osbert the wonderful name several sitwell thank god he didn't have a lisp um <laughs> and uh Edith, the ones who wrote Facade, the ones who were very sort of popular in the 1920s as sort of avant-garde poets and writers. She was talking about them and up flashed on the screen behind her this photograph, which looked to me like Edith Sitwell, obviously, with her very distinctive looks, and a very young Marilyn Monroe sitting on a sofa. Luckily, because she was an old friend, I had the nerve to go up to her afterwards. And I said, well, was, that a, was that a photograph of Edith and Marilyn Monroe? And Alex said, yes. And I said, well, but what? Uh, <laughs> how does that work <laughs> precisely? And she told me the story about it, about how Edith, sort of towards the end of her life, used to go on these tours of America, recital tours. And she would pack out these concert halls, effectively, reading her a poetry, doing strange things like the sleepwalking scene in Lady Macbeth, and, 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 <laughs> and, 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 and just being adored by the American public. And the tours were sponsored, or this particular tour in 1953, was sponsored by Life magazine. And when she got to Los Angeles at the end of the tour, the people from Life magazine said, now, Dame Edith, we're not sure if you've read your contract, but you will see that in it is an obligation to write an article about Los Angeles through the eyes of a Brit. And we 
wanted you to do an interview. What we want you to do is, is an interview with this up-and-coming, rising starlet called Marilyn Monroe, who Edith had never heard of. I mean, the world had hardly heard of her at all. She'd done a couple of films, but she was filming uh, Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, which was her big sort of standout hit to start her career off. And so they met. And of course, Life magazine expected that the two of them would loathe each other. I mean, they came from such different backgrounds. Uh, but actually, they got on incredibly well. I mean, you can see in the photograph. So much so that the interview was never written up because she said, no, I refuse to, to, to write something about this wonderful girl when you want me to write how stupid she is. And she's not. She's bright. And um, so the only thing that existed, the only thing that... that that marked this extraordinary occasion was this photograph uh, taken by Life's sort of in-house photographer of the two of them. And I thought, that's a good story. I mean, I do think this story of Edith and Marilyn is incredible. And I can't believe there's not a record of the I know, it's conversation. I know. How did you exactly? So how do you know that they, she really liked her? I mean, I know you can tell in the picture, but... but You can tell in the, in the picture. It's referred to once or twice. Mar the Marilyn, I think, referred to it once. Edith refers to it in her autobiography. But I was just sort of inspired to think, OK, well, how about if I was in the room listening? What might have gone on? And that's what I tried to do. I think that if Berry Brothers gave me an advantage at all in terms of writing plays, it was... I don't know if you've ever been, but above the shop, above the old shop in St. James's Street, is a wonderful dining room. And we used to invite all sorts of people to Karam and have lunch there. And the thing was the wine, of course, but, all, but, but also what wine sort of does best of all, which is to inspire conversations. And I used to sit there, I mean, for 25 years of my life, listening to these extraordinary people speaking. And I think it sort of seeped in through osmosis. And if I can do anything, I'm not sure if you agree with this, Charlotte, or not, but I think that ability to be able to find a voice of somebody comes from those lunches. How also, brilliant. Very I, mean, nice I think um, Charlotte and I will gloss over the fact that in 25 years, neither of us were. <laughs> well, I was going to say. Amazing uh, boardroom lunches. But I had this vision of, uh, I think you I know now. buy your wine for I've, I think I know now how you got Emma Thompson. I, I had this vision of Emma Thompson nipping into Berry Brothers every day for a couple of bottles of very ordinary claret. Um, uh, beating good Berry Brothers, her local she's a, <laughs> Good ordinary, that's it. Uh, but she's a, a regular Berry Brothers customer. Is that how you managed to snaffle? Emma, Emma well, I've, I've sort of known her vaguely forever. But one of the many things people don't know about Emma is that she is an absolute wine fanatic. She loves her wine and she knows a lot about it. She she once she she did the Berries wine course about oh about I think seven or eight years ago and was so inspired by that that she announced at the end that she was going to take a year off from act, acting to do her Master of Wine exam. <laughs> and everybody said, well, that's 
fine. Uh, it does normally take a bit longer than a year, which she bridled at a bit. <laughs> and of course, the only thing that stopped her was her, her agent speaking about called my agent. Her agent said, you can't do that, thinking of the thousands Lost of millions. But she, and so she didn't in the end, but she certainly got the capability of doing it. And she loves her a while. And we became better and better friends during that. But I'd written this play and I sat there and I typed out a note to Emma saying, uh, if you've got half an hour, would you just cast a glance and I at this and give me some tips on writing? It never occurred to me for a second that she might play Edith at all. Next thing I knew is I got an email back from her which said, I love it. It would be perfect for my friend Harriet Walter. Mind you, it it would be quite good for me as well. Dot, dot, dot. Uh. Oh, she's brilliant in it. She's br- I mean, she's because she does that thing from haughtiness to actually talk, you know, revealing her own loneliness because they both get down to that, don't they? It both turns out she, they were both very lonely children. Yeah. Uh, yes, she she's astonishing. I mean, she is a wonderful actress through and through and through. And Sinead, who plays Marilyn, I think is is just gorgeous because she's got... I think the point of the play is that these are two women who took on personas, which weren't really mm. them. Mm. But this was sort of their way of coping with life because it's really, it's a play about, it's a play about motherhood. It's a play about immortality. It's a play, I think, as well. I think there's such a thing going on right now, and it's largely, I suspect, due to social media, of where everybody concentrates on what divides us. Actually, what this story is about is that there's so much more that unites us. Why don't we concentrate on that a bit more? The world would be a better place. So I hope that these two dysfunctional but extraordinary women sort of help a bit to <laughs> come to those conclusions. Well, I think, you, I think you've done a brilliant job. And I mean, I for one absolutely loved it. You're very sweet. It, uh, I also, I, I, as I said to you before, that, that I, I've, I've subscribed to this podcast and it's been wonderful and i've been sort of not quite box setting it it but i've been binge listening uh, <laughs> and i loved i loved the one you did with julia samuel a couple of weeks ago now and especially when she was talking about what was her expression unlived lives yes yes uh, ed had loads uh, ed had loads of those didn't you ed <laughs> yeah, I've got tons well i'm looking forward to hearing the piano play <laughs> like, oh, you know, chairman of a wine company is one of them yeah, I agree. Well, well, <laughs> Especially with that dining room. <laughs> in a way, this playwriting thing was an unlived, is an unlived life of mine. Well, not unlived now. I mean, I'm beginning to live it, but it's something I've always wanted to do. And I thought, well, give it a go. Thank you so much for coming on and telling us about it. It was just marvellous. My pleasure. Thank you very much indeed. Now, anyone who lives in London might have walked or driven past Fulham Town Hall, right opposite Fulham Broadway Tube, without really noticing it, except as a bit of an eyesore, because for the last decade or so, it's been abandoned, all locked up and looking sadder than ever. That's all about to change because it's going to become a hotel. But meanwhile, in an incredibly exciting takeover, Art in the Age of Now is staging a three-week exhibition with over 100 artists in a free exhibition 
to support London's artistic community. Now, I've actually had a sneak preview with curator Ben Moore, and this is a must-see exhibition. First of all, the town hall itself is an unbelievable slice of history, very crumbling and dilapidated, but nevertheless, all the old courtrooms, ballrooms, theatres, committee rooms, function rooms, stained glass windows, and even the holding cells under the courtroom are all basically intact, and they're now crammed full of art. This is about as far away as you're going to get from a smart Bond Street gallery opening, but there's a fantastic authentic energy to the whole thing. There's art in every corner, murals and street art on the walls, huge installations dominating the function rooms, art in the holding cells, and there'll be live events in the courtroom and so on. It really feels quite unlike anything else in London at the moment, and as if a whole underground movement has suddenly erupted. One of the artists exhibiting there is Conrad Shawcross, and unlike many of the other artists on display, he's a globally renowned sculptor whose work is likely to grace the forecourt of the Royal Academy, as well as appearing in an exhibition like this. He is, of course, the youngest living member of the Royal Academy. He's presenting his piece, Slow Arc Inside a Cube 7, a beautiful powder-coated steel latticework and light sculpture, quite typical of his geometric style. And he's here to tell us about his work and give us an insight into the exhibition as a whole. Good morning, Conrad. Good morning. Hi. Conrad, it's great to have you with us. And I loved your sculpture, though. I have to say, when I went, everyone was panicking as it was squeaking so much. Um, I'll get you to explain to our listeners why that, that might have been in a minute. But start by telling us why you decided to take part in this exhibition. The first thing is that the space is just amazing. It's a, the, one of these abandoned spaces that used to be much more common in London, particularly in the East End. So it was, again, as you described so eloquently, it's this incredible sort of um, untouched kind of piece of history. And the spaces are ginormous and um, it's got incredible sort of pathos and energy and just an extraordinary kind of um, throwback to a different era. And 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 Ben has done this extraordinary thing in, in a difficult time when no one is really doing anything like this. And so there was, while the show is, it's sort of very, it's quite a, it's a very youthful and kind of really alternative and very supportive of kind of younger and, and emerging artists. It, it just felt so um, important to do something with them. Uh, and so we just, we've all just done, instead of using sort of art movers and shippers and all that sort of normal sort of more formal stuff that you do in museums and galleries which I'm more used to we just sort of all it was just felt like being um, um, a student again more like sort of just all just mucking in and setting it up and just just uh, everyone lending a hand and there's a tremendous energy down there lots of really interesting people and it's a sort of amazing um, it's an amazing sort of community these created. Yeah I think that's what's so exciting about this exhibition because so much of this work has been done during lockdown and then there are the new murals the artists have done it does feel like this energy is being released after being pent up for so long. Well, I agree. And what I loved about it is when I went down there, there were lots of artists around installing their work, um, including Joe Rush, the founder of the Mutoid Waste Company. He's got a really beautiful artwork there, which is like a very sort of Alice in Wonderlandish tree made out of old spanners and a clock and bits of metal. That was certainly one of my favourite pieces. And I know I'm nicking one of Ed's usual questions, um, but was was there any artist work there you feel people really mustn't miss? Because there's so much to see. I have saw it a few weeks ago, so there was ama- lots of amazing things. There was, um, uh, there's, there's, I mean, there's Ben's work himself and then the, 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 the um, amazing Stonehenge 
the sort of mini Stonehenge in the in the main dance hall. Oh yes, which is a wonderful which wonderful piece. Which is there's some amazing kind of drone footage of that. But every every corner of the thing has a different has a sort of different response. So there's just I mean I don't know how many artists are in the show, but it's a it's a complete labyrinth of sort of discovery and it just his his generosity to to open it up to um, to as many people as possible is also really, really um, striking and should be um, really sort of noted. It's really brought out the, um, the cooperation and the community that exists among artists. But before you go, I just want to talk about you, Conrad. So tell us what your next project is going to be. I mean, you are a, a world-renowned artist with a global following. Well, we do. I mean, we've got this, we've got the piece in that show, which is obviously really exciting. And that's this, it's a, it's a show, it makes it, it's called Slow Arc Inside a Cube, which is, it makes these shadows around the room, which sort of puts the whole architecture around it into flux. We're doing a big piece, um, a public community-led project in Ramsgate, which is opening in um, late May, early June, which is a sort of, with, was working with school kids down there. And we've created a series of beacons that send a message out to sea and it's uh it's an interactive piece so you can turn you can actually oh, operate the work but it's a massive piece on the seafront in ramsgate so it hasn't been officially completely launched so i should keep some some details of it back but um it's um it's a really exciting kind of public realm piece that will be on the seafront for a year um and um hopefully we'll bring a lot That's of great. people into ramsgate well i loved your piece in the gallery and because what was beautiful about it was the patterns that it was throwing on the walls were quite honeycombish it was absolutely beautiful you know it was it was this big metal thing in the middle of this extraordinary another vast sort of deserted rubbly room honestly it's just i can't recommend it more highly it's just unlike anything else in london so thank you so much conrad great all right, thank you. That's all we've got time for today, but don't forget to check out our weekly Country and Townhouse newsletter, plus the new May Great British Brands newsletter is out with our pick of all the upcoming summer cultural events to book into. Just add slash newsletter to the end of our address, which is, of course, countryandtownhouse.co.uk. And you'll also find our other podcasts on the website, the Great British Brands podcast, hosted by Michael Heyman of Changemakers, and House Guest, which has all the latest on interior design, hosted by Carol Annette. Next week, we'll be back with another action-packed podcast, and we're going to be celebrating with a Martin Miller's summerful cocktail called the Bee's Knees. But for now, don't forget you can find Martin Miller's gins, including the Somerville, on their website at martinmillersgin.com. Charlotte and I are ready for a stiff summerful cocktail inspired by Dame Edith Sitwell in Simon Berry's play, who taught Marilyn Monroe how to make the perfect martini. You'll have to listen to the Dame and the Showgirl yourselves to find out exactly how. But for now, thank you for listening and see you next week.